Like you're talking about like groupies. It makes way more sense that this music would attract women as an audience than say Megadeth. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where lifelong friends and lifelong musicians break down, analyze, and complain about an album from Robert Dimery's 1001 Albums, You Must Hear Before You Die. We're going to go deep on the liner notes, we're going to break down the songs musically, and we're going to ultimately vote on whether or not this was really a record you needed to hear before you died. Today, we're going to be, or we have been listening to for the last week, and we're going to be discussing Earth, Wind, and Fire's record, That's the Way of the World. Very excited to get into that. Very excited to introduce, we have a special guest today, in fact. Uh, going to get to that momentarily, but first I wanted to dip into the old mailbag and read what I think is going to be a little bit of a, a roller coaster of a, of, of a mailbag, so I, I hope you're ready. And if you'd like to have your email of complaints and compliments read here live on the air by myself or, or one of my compadres, you can send an email over to 1001albumcomplaints at gmail. We'd love to hear from you. We read all your missives and we get excited by them and I think this is going to stir up some shit. So here we go. This is coming from a gentleman, I'm sorry I'm going to mispronounce your name, Damir from Stockholm. So we have a listener all the way over in Sweden, guys. Whoa. This is, this is big news. He says, first off, love the podcast. Thank you for your service. I was listening to the Cosmos Factory episode. Amazing album and amazing band, by the way. And you were asking yourselves who below the age of 40 could possibly be listening to your podcast. And I just want to say that I am one of those people. 28 years old. And I did love Adam's Bayou joke. So there's that. <laughs> I, believe, I believe Alan and I groaned when that came up. But that should make Adam happy. I'm telling you, this is gonna be a roller coaster. That's, that's go funny. Up and I, down from here. As a digression, I do feel like I was the one that questioned whether we had listeners under 40. So maybe I alienated a huge swath of our uh, demographic that's right. here. They're in Sweden. The, this list, the Swedish are. I've always been very hip when it comes to music. We all know that. He goes on to say, I also wanted to say that I started off by listening to all your reviews of albums that I already had listened to beforehand to see how much our musical preference Venn diagrams overlapped. And they mostly did, but I kept skipping over the Purple Rain and Velvet Underground episodes because I was convinced you guys would be raving about how amazing and revolutionary these albums were, which I could not disagree with more. They're not good albums at all. In fact, the VU one is outright horseshit. <laughs> that, I, I, actually, just, just based on the use of that particular curse word, this might actually be Alan in disguise. We're writing in. <laughs> Well, I, I wouldn't say I was from Sweden. I'd probably pick somewhere far less interesting than that. So that is a wild take. I yeah, I agree. I disagree. Yeah, I disagree. But, well, there were, is, there is, were was amazing. On the show that week that felt strongly aligned. Yeah, it was a very it was a early episode, and it was a very very contentious episode. So about half the podcast is excited that the Swedes agree with them, but I'm not on that side. And then he closes out most controversial section coming up, boys. He closes out 
and says, so when I finally bit the bullet and listened to those episodes, I was so happy to hear that you guys mostly sided with me in my opinion. So keep up the good work, but also know, and I know that I'm shooting myself in the foot by ending with this statement, that your opinions on 461 Ocean Boulevard are wrong. <laughs> what? <laughs> Dude. Damn, right. that was like the ultimate this is, this uh, is sucker punch at the end there. <laughs> <laughs> this is impossible. This is Tom. This is, he's trolling us. That's some, yeah, they, this guy hit all the notes of wow. successfully trolling us, I think, wow. by the way. So, yeah, yeah it, it might be Tom, actually. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that was a roller coaster. That was more like a car wreck. I was like, yeah, everything, everything checks out until, wait, what? That album sucks. Well, if this guy <laughs> is a real person, and we're, I'm ever in Stockholm. Let's not hang out? <laughs> Dude, he's 28, man. He's not trying to hang out with yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not trying to hang out with you. Hey, I got a 30-year-old <laughs> cousin in Stockholm. I'm going to get him checked out. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll find out. Exactly. Good. Good, good job. Bet. That was exciting. That was exciting mailbag, though. That was great. I know. It was, it was long-winded, but it had a lot of twists and turns. I agree. It's good. So please write more stuff like that. We're going to stick to one, one mailbag entry today because that one was so long and fun. And it's going to be tough to top. But if you want to shoot us over an email, we listen. Uh, sorry, we read all of them. And then, and then I read them and the other guys listen to them. So there's that. But on to today's business. We are listening to Earth, Wind, and Fire's record, That's the Way of the World. It came out in 1975. And just to give us a little taste of where we've been at all week, I'm going to play a little snippet of the song, the hit from the album called Shining Star. we always like to do here i'd like to send it around the room have everyone introduce themselves with a short tweet length review of the album tell us about how your week has gone i'm gonna kick it first to phil hey guys it's phil this week uh hanging out glad to be back i haven't been here in a couple of weeks when cosmos factory came up on the mailbag it actually made me think back i'm supposed to be on cosmos factory and i was all prepared to pan it but I had some existential crisis around that and Bjork and it was, I, I had to, yeah, I'm glad, glad I'm, that's passed. Anyway, yeah, I had a great week. The record's great. It's fabulous. And I think uh, Boston Globe's Stephen Kerwood said it best when he said, these guys are great. And this is a sound you shouldn't miss. All right. Nice, nice. All right, we're going to kick it over to Alan next. Give us your tweet length review of That's the Way of the World. So my tweet length review, this is Alan, by the way. Regardless of whether you like this album, whether you hate this album, whether you think it's good, you think it's bad, if grooves like this don't move your head or your body in some way while you're listening to this, you may want to seek some professional help. With that said, does that make it a great album? We shall see. 
We certainly shall. We certainly shall. And I'm going to kick it now to our very special guest. Justin is back with us. It's been uh, several episodes, but he joined us for an early episode on Count Basie, lent his amazing library of musical knowledge to us, and now Justin is back. Justin, say hello. Hey, everybody. This is Justin, a.k.a. Justifarian on Twitter, and you can find me listening to these beautiful Earth, Wind, and Fire tunes. I'm so in love with this sound. I think this album is a, a beautiful and emotional journey through american music and it is not to be missed nice nice well this is rob here and i'll just close out this round with my tweet length review earth wind and fire are tight and smooth and hardworking, and fashionable and somehow also prog that was surprising to me very surprising let's get into a little background on this group because i learned a lot this week and I'm excited to to dice it up with y'all before we get into the specific song. So you can't really talk about Earth, Wind, and Fire without first talking about Maurice White. He is the creator of the group. He is the leader of the group. He's been the through line of the group, or at least was for, for many years. And he, he compiled the group, right? He started out as a session drummer at Chess Records in Chicago and was having a pretty successful career. This would have been in the 60s. He played on Muddy Waters records. He played on some other, he played on some Etta James records, some other hit records. And at some point, he was a, basically trained as a jazz drummer, but he was playing on some of those chess recordings. And at some point, he joins jazz pianist Ramsey Lewis's band as the drummer in the Ramsey Lewis Trio, which was a very successful jazz trio. In fact, I'd love to hear uh, Justin's take on that. I'm sure he knows more about Ramsey Lewis, but he had a successful gig as a sideman for some amount of time, but at some point decided to quit because he wanted more. Justin, what do you, what do you know about Ramsey Lewis? Ramsey Lewis is a uh, jazz pianist in the mold of Earl Father Hines and Earl Gar- uh, Garner. Sort of came up, he's uh, about the same generation as Ahmad Jamal, uh, came up in those areas, but really didn't make the same didn't make the same changes or, or change the music in the same way Ahmad Jamal did. Uh, kind of stayed in his pocket, but but was very successful in his pocket. And he was he was a uh, you know guy to Chicago. Very, I mean, he just died actually um, like last year, I think. He was in his eighties, and he had been in Chicago, stayed in Chicago his whole life. Uh, very much a Chicago guy. Uh, really straight, stayed true to the traditional jazz format. And was making a lot of money. I don't think people realize how much money Ramsey Lewis was one of the top, uh, you know, uh, earning jazz musicians in the 60s. Wasn't taking a lot of chances, but was playing a lot of gigs, making a lot of money. And so he was playing uh, the Chicago in the Chicago record label Chess Records. Uh, and in 1966, he lost his a couple of his drummer and his bassist. And Maurice White was doing some session work for Chess. The, the, I mean, the whole genesis of this album was in Chess Records, right? So he was doing some sessions work, and he joined uh, Ramsey Lewis uh, for for his in his trio, and they made some really funky records. There's a couple of good ones. I think uh, my favorite Ramsey records with Maurice White as drums are going to be the Maiden Voyage record and the Another Voyage record. If you listen to the Maiden Voyage record, there's a there's a good there's a couple uh, really strong uh, drum beats that end up getting sampled in some hip hop records. 
uh, one of them in particular at a far side record. Uh, and then another voyage is, is actually, it was a really good just in and of itself. So if you do have some time, check out Ramsey Lewis. Those records are, are really good. Uh, and then a man who, who, who does later become, you know, work as a, a ranger producer on That's the Way of the World uh, named Charles Stepney, the step god. He is also produce. He also produces for Ramsey Lewis. Uh, he produced an album called Mother Nature's Son. Uh, so, sort of the whole like genesis around what you know, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and and you know, this album is is begins in Chess Records. So, a couple things there, right? Thank you for that context. So, yeah, Maurice White really cut his teeth working as a session man for Chess Records. He's a drummer. He learns a lot from a lot of different people because he's doing these different sessions. And then he, even as a young guy, I think he was probably only 19 or 20 when he was playing in the Ramsey Lewis trio, or, or pretty young in any case. And it was, a, and as Justin said, it was very successful, partly because Ramsey Lewis wasn't known for, as someone who was taking chances in jazz. Thus, he was more of a crossover hit. He was making money. He was crossing over into the pop charts. And it was a, it was a good gig. It was considered a very good gig in the music business. But Maurice White wanted more. So he quits and decides to form his own band. And one of the things is that he hears that Jim Brown, yes, that Jim Brown, Cleveland running back, Jim Brown, is interested in music and has started his own management company in L.A. And is interested in finding black and promoting black talent. And so he ends up hooking up and Jim Brown is Earth, Wind & Fire's first manager. Get out of here. That's funny. He's a prolific dude. I remember he was also... A, if I'm not mistaken, one of the best lacrosse players yeah, yeah, of all time, or at least up until records on a say or college lacrosse. I, I mean, by that, yeah. if you're up, uh, you know, built like a brick shit house running back, you're probably good at other sports. I guess that shouldn't be a surprise. Well, that's like saying, yeah, LeBron should play for the American <laughs> soccer team or something. I mean, you know, it would probably work, right? With enough training. I, I, by the way, actually, I found one cool anecdote about his old days in Chicago, that is Maurice White's days in Chicago, is that at one point he was in a trio where Jack DeJeanette was the sax player. I just thought that was that was weird. He also, um, uh, Booker T from Booker T and the MGs, so Maurice was born in Memphis, and he grew up when he was younger uh, in, in, like, he went to Memphis, I think he went to Chicago when he was like 14, because his mom left him in Memphis. And he was friends with Booker T from Booker T and the MGs. So him and Booker T had a little group when they was like in junior high. So, you know, he was already, you know, grooving with these dudes. Jazz dudes, you know. Yeah. So he was, yeah, he was real ensconced in, in that jazz world. I guess it's the point of the story and, and had those jazz chops. But, but wanted more. Decided to form his own group. Earth, Wind & Fire comes from his own astrological signs that he that he looked at on a chart i can't remember what the whole no he had a uh, he went to a tarot card reading in chicago and she said he yeah. had the, he had the, all the signs earth wind and fire in him so that, oh that was, shit you know, that's cool yeah he's he's i mean that's what's a great thing about uh maurice white he's very like spiritual new age you know so the the band is really a concept band right it's about it's about creating a group for his generation. You know, one of the things I think he was feeling when he was playing in the Ramsey Lewis trio is that he was playing to an older audience, right? Not his generation. You know, he was playing with musicians that were older than him, and he was a young man, and he wanted something for his own generation. But number two is that he wanted, um, he had a mission to raise people's spiritual consciousness. So this was supposed to be music with a message or with spiritual undertones. He actually had a name for it. He called it The Concept 
with a capital C. And this was a through line that carried through a lot of the, the tougher times with Earth, Wind & Fire. He was a pretty straight-edge dude and a taskmaster when it came to practicing. Like That's one of the reasons I said they were such a hard-working band. They would practice constantly. But he was always striving for, for more. So he goes out to L.A. He, he does put, put together, initially put together a band. Uh, Jim Brown is the manager. There was another anecdote where they went to have a meeting at Jim Brown's house one time. Like him and his, his brother, uh, Verdine White, is the bass player in the band. They go over to Jim Brown's house to have a meeting. They knock on his door, and he just answers the door completely naked, and then conducts the entire <laughs> meeting naked. <laughs> I, I mean, if you got the goods, you know, <laughs> right? And he they, doesn't care. <laughs> He's Jim Brown. And I think that was where that was where Maurice White's little brother, who was like uh, several years, I think ten years younger than him, was just like, "Oh, I've I've arrived in Hollywood." Clearly. <laughs> But uh, anyway, but so they, they get a contract and they do two records as Earth, Wind & Fire, or maybe it was more than two actually, but he's, he's not satisfied. They're not having breakthrough success and he ultimately disbands the group. So he's been like hacking away at it for a while and he reforms and he hires a bunch of young bucks and this is actually when he brings his younger brother in. So when it comes to this record, what you have to understand is they're like an eight piece or a nine piece. There's some extra musicians on the record too. But Maurice is 10 years older than everyone else. So he's like 30 and all the other guys are like 20. Even older than his brother? Oh, yeah. Because this is half-brother. This is half-brother. Yeah, half the gap brother. between him and his brother is like 10 years. Got it. Okay. And, and actually, yeah. his other younger brother comes to play the drums. Because they fire the other drummer and his younger brother, Fred, comes and starts playing drums before they come in this album. So you know, it's, it's, wait, wait, wait a second. Nobody's named Fred anymore. <laughs> like I know why nobody's named Jeff, but why is nobody named Fred? But Rob, Rob, you left <laughs> yes. out uh you left out the part where he gets signed, he leaves Warner Brothers and gets signed by the boogeyman Clive Davis to CBS Columbia. Yeah. And I don't know where your opinions at are on Clive Davis. A lot of people don't like him because of the Whitney Houston stuff. But um I heard a podcast with uh, uh, Santana on it. And he signed Santana to CBS Columbia, and that's where he got to do all those uh, funky early albums. And he he still has a pretty positive perception of him, and Maurice has a real positive perception of him. So I, it, it's just interesting that in certain you know areas he's become hated, but like you know he was pretty pretty he was being pretty open back then when a lot of people wouldn't assign somebody like Santana and let him do you know do whatever they want, sign Maurice White with this weird band, you know, doing all this spiritual bullshit and let them do what they want, you know? Yeah, I think that was that was what Maurice was was looking for, right? So he had a kind of a big ask and Clive Davis and CBS pulled off kind of a coup getting him out of his previous record contract. And part of it was that Earth Wind and Fire was not an easily categorizable band. They some a lot of people would have wanted to push them into the mold of like the Temptations, sing in harmony, kind of all dressed in suits, things like that. But they saw themselves as more of a cross between Sly Stone and maybe Weather Report. You know, they they, they were trying to create something truly new. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because some of the notes I had were that this definitely sounded more of the like. You know, some of that soul music that had really psych rock elements uh, like Sly Stone that I picked up on. I even had a note in one of the songs that like halfway through this <laughs> halfway through the song, they just turn into Weather Report all of a sudden just playing really Still out there. Shredding. Well, Shit. hey, he he 
Maurice has a production company later, and guess who he signs to his production company? Weather Report. Oh, shit. Okay, there you have it. No, they were, yeah, they were definitely fans of what they were doing and fans of Prague in general. And, you know, we're just trying to mix genres quite a bit and not fall into this e- easily categorizable thing. And Maurice seems like he's just the kind of guy that had a vision. So even after he reformed the band with a bunch of younger guys, he continued. Then they made a, a slew of records after that, even before this one. That's the Way of the World is their sixth studio album. But he kept changing out players and, you know, was looking to kind of form the right band and and get to that perfect combination that he was looking for. And he was kind of relentless about it. And he was really invested in the music and the spirituality, not at all in drugs, drinking, or women, really. At least that was how well, he presented Well, we're going to have to talk about that when we talk about reasons, because there's some women there. Well, I was I was going to say, that's... I, <laughs> I, so as it happens, That's I read, always what brings you down. <laughs> So let's talk, let's talk about the men, because I read, this week, I read Philip Bailey's memoir, and Philip Bailey is the other vocalist and the high falsetto mm-hmm. on this track, and mm-hmm. he and he loved the ladies, let me assure you. Oh, yeah. But you have Maurice White on vocals and drums and kalimba, which is that little African thumb piano, if you were wondering what that sound was on some of these recordings. Pretty, pretty interesting, unique sound. You have Verdine White, who is Maurice's younger brother on bass. Also does some vocals. This guy, Philip Bailey, on vocals and congas. You got a guy called Larry Dunn on keys. You have a couple different drummers, and Maurice himself would sometimes play drums on different tracks, but one was his other younger brother, aforementioned Fred White, a guy called Ralph Johnson. There was a horn player. There were two guitar players, Al McKay and Johnny Graham. And then you have this other personality, this producer, who they hooked up with, Charles Stepney. The God. Step God. Yeah. So this record came out March 15th, 1975. It has been certified triple platinum. It was a huge, huge success. They toiled away as a band for six albums, and this was truly their breakthrough. I think that was the most surprising thing to me in going through this album was, I mean, everyone knows Earth, Wind & Fire, right? And if you don't know their catalog, you've heard of them. You you know exactly what they are. But I was kind of surprised that... It's a great name. Oh, right? totally, like just the totally. name alone. It's like you're instantly like, all right, like what do you got? You know, <laughs> it's 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 a great name, and and they're an iconic band. But yeah. I was kind of surprised an album like this would reach number one. You know, I, obviously, like Motown and Soul had had a big imprint by that point. But there's a lot of aspects of this album. I think the psych aspects that we talked about earlier, and and some of the other interesting kind of nuances where. I, I it didn't jump out as me at me as like hey this is this would be like really commercially viable. Yeah, there's not a lot of what you might call singles on here. I mean there's a lot of deep grooves, there's a lot of slow dance songs frankly that I understand why people would like, but in terms of a single, I feel like Shining Star is the only one that jumps out in the way that and cuz I associate and a lot of people associate Earth Wind and Fire with perhaps their most successful hit September which came later. So I was a little surprised, and then apart from the single and the kind of uh, the slow jams, then there's just some heavy prog stuff that is not really for public consumption. Uh, not, not <laughs> you know, normal public, <laughs> general public, general public consumption is what I meant, right? It reminded me a bit of when we did Maggot Brain, where there's just some really hip shit happening that I think you're right. It's not, it's not as like. 
easy to digest for just the average Joe, I guess. I mean, the, the second song on Maggot Brain is just like a straight funk ace. It's like a... Which I actually heard in a commercial recently. Yeah, totally Did you guys notice that? Yeah, yeah. It's in, uh, it's in like a... What it's like it's some like bank a, commercial. I don't know. Nah, but yeah, it's something like that. Yeah. It's cool. So speaking of ways to use the music, so what happened was they did the soundtrack for what ended up being an important movie in, in cinema called Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, made by a guy called Melvin, Melvin Van, Van Peebles. Peebles. Right. And it's often credited, or it's one of the films that's credited as the first black exploitation films. It came out the same year as Shaft, but it's kind of in a similar vein. And they did the soundtrack for that. And it kind of, this was before this album, and it kind of elevated them up up a couple notches. And Adam's not on the call. He's kind of our resident Simpsons expert. But I wanted to point out that there is a Simpsons episode called Sweet Seymour Skinner's Badass Song, where Skinner gets fired and Flanders becomes president, uh, rather principal. That's a reference to that movie. The movie's also the first uh, movie with the black director in cinema so it was it was very uh important for a lot of reasons shit yeah that's wild so unfortunately though that might have led them slightly astray because then uh a year or two later another guy comes around the guy who had made superfly which was also uh did really well at the box office another black exploitation film this guy's name is sig shore and he convinces them to do the music for his next movie and in fact he exchanges a piece of the the proceeds from the movie for a piece of the proceeds from the album. They're excited about it. This guy, Sig Shore, is you know talking it up big. He'd obviously just had a big success with Superfly. They head into the studio as these like well-oiled machines. They had been touring, practicing all this stuff, and they produce what they think is their best work yet. Then they go to a screening in the movie, and they literally come out of it like one of the guys is in tears. He's Bruh, like, "That movie is Maurice so terrible." Maurice was crying. He thought it was over. He thought that movie was going to sink the record. And right. Verdine said, it's going to be all right, brother. It's going to be all right. But he made a huge decision was not to put the original motion picture soundtrack verbiage on the album. Like, well, I don't. Well, what's the what's the lineage of decisions? Because yeah, the movie was at they they had this screening for the movie, and apparently the director was still really confident in it. But the the guys in the band saw it and were like, "This is terrible. No. This is going to tank our career." And it was by the way, the movie was called "That's the Way of the World," which is why they called the album that. But based on the it seemed like based on the director's confidence before the movie had actually come out to the public, they were able to renegotiate and get their the full rights to their album back trading it but you know so like they were kind of out of even though the the titles were associated they didn't have to share the proceeds with maurice them. never wanted to have original motion picture soundtrack on the record he, he's talked about that in his biography he was 100 percent against that he wa- always wanted the album to stand on its own um and you know he ended up being right like he was right about a lot of things so well it's funny the one of the probably the best quote that i came or the best like soundbite that i came across for this was on Wikipedia just for Earth, Wind, and Fire when it talks about this album. And it's, it just says, when the band saw the film, they were convinced that it would become a box office bomb, comma, which it eventually was. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like stating it as just a, a fact. But Rob, did you watch the did you watch the video? No, no. I did not watch oh, the video. No. It oh. is beautiful. The first okay, so there's like a seven minute video on YouTube where you just get the introduction, but all the video is is Earth, Wind, and Fire doing the title track. It's just them in the studio, 
with all the guys and with some a couple guys on the EQ and Stephanie's in there and it's great that at the end of the 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 uh the sequence they like pack pack everything up in a in a van you don't have to watch the whole god awful movie i mean Hi- gotcha, harvey gotcha. harvey Keitel's in it but like it's cool it's a cool just like window into them recording yeah yeah and i did watch a lot of footage of earth wind and fire i should say and in case it's not clear they have a lot of pizzazz on stage they were dressed to the nines. I mean, like they were from the future or had just stepped off an alien spaceship. We're talking full gold lame headbands and shit. You know, they they, they looked tight. But like yeah, head I heard to toe Harvey, in, in white suits with, with fringe and like, yeah, they did it up. more. Yeah, almost more Sun Ra, though, than, than The Temptations. You know, like definitely out there, like a mixture of like Afro, it's like an Afrofuturism thing, maybe, is the style. Well, I don't know, well there's but. like elements of it that are almost like P-Funk, right? But they're just, mm-hmm. in this case, I think they're, they're zeroing in on very different elements of sort of uh, musicology. And they're, uh, and they're, they're, they're just, they're more refined players, right? I heard an anecdote too when, kind of, I think it was early in the That's new lineup of the P-Funk. band. No, no. Well, speaking of, speaking of P-Funk, it was early in the new lineup of Earth, Wind and Fire. Maurice and the, and the band went and played in Philadelphia and they opened for a band they didn't know who it was going to be. And they were kind of, um, they were still trying to format, you know, what the music should be. It was a little more proggy. It was a little, their dress was a little more flower child, flowy 60s. And then P-Funk come on and just blow the house down. <laughs> and they were like, they just mentioned it as this moment of being spiritually depanced. Like, we've, we're not used to being blown off the stage like this. We got to get some funk into our sound. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. But, you know, uh, it was really interesting. Uh, just going back briefly to when Maurice left Ramsey Lewis. Can you imagine being this old school jazz man from chicago you know you're into the traditional ways you know earl i don't know if you listen to earl gardner but it's very traditional jazz music and your drummer comes up to you and he says hey you know rams i want to start my own band and he's thinking oh yeah okay so you're gonna have a jazz trio or whatever nah he's like i want to have play jazz or pop and i want to play samba and i want to play you know, all these other kinds of genres and I want to have dancing and magic. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine Ramsey in his in interviews? He said, I thought he had sunstroke. I said, go home, <laughs> take some Alka-Seltzer and, and go to sleep. Right. <laughs> Call me in the morning. You are going crazy, my friend. Yeah, and, and that he made it work. That was the most surprising thing to me about this band, because I, I really didn't know the band coming into this week. It's just how genre in specific, they really were. How much they blended so many different styles. I, I was expecting them to be tight. I was expecting them to be funky, and I was expecting them to have good vocal harmony. But I got so much more than that. It's like entering a world of different styles of music. And actually, that is kind of my criticism of it is that it is kind of all over the place at times. It was a fun listen, but and there's a lot of great moments on it and, a, and a, several great tracks, I think. But it's a little scattered, is what I would say. And their their output. They have a lot of output also, so I don't know. I, I felt that same way, yeah. Like, listening to this, I had an expectation of what it would sound like, and when I think of groups from this era, of this ilk, I think of, like, Tower of Power and Ohio Players and, you know, some of these other, like, 70s soul groups, and there's just a certain, you kind of know what you're going to get, 
And I didn't really feel like I got that here in, in a very positive way. Fair enough. So let's segue into talking about the specific songs. The first song on our focus list, we already played a little snippet of it. We're going to play a little different snippet of it. It's called, it opens the record and it's called Shining Star. classic right right it kicks off with that cool like stereo double track clavichord you know it's got like the sort of one chord sharp nine hendrix jam awesome harmony like what do you what do you want you know the <laughs> harmony is so tight it's <laughs> so tight yeah, yeah. it's I crazy like the low voice the low voice is what really makes it for me it's just like you know it doesn't jump out right away but once you know once you really key in on it it's it's super tight. It's super tight. They pack a lot into less than three minutes, too. It doesn't... Yeah, it feels like much longer than, like, two minutes and 45 seconds or whatever. Like, much longer, right? Absolutely. Like, it's it's uh, it's just efficient, you know? It's just kind of in and out, a lot in there. Um, and I think the, the diversity of sound, too, like, it's obviously a, a funk-ish kind of sound. Like, it's kind of what I, what I would expect of, like, early 70s James Brown. You know, so it, it definitely is of that sort of you know ilk but i think there was also just so much more r&b and soul it's just it's like a nice kind of concoction of really cool sounds that were happening at that time yeah totally and this is i mean my head perked up right away when i put the record on and heard this but in particular when that electric guitar line came in around one minute in and that was just like so fast and so so proggy sounding i mean i guess it was just like a pretty straightforward pentatonic run but i was just wasn't expecting it to be that shreddy very cool so this uh this song actually won a grammy for them and it was their first top 40 crossover hit meaning it charted both on the r&b charts and the pop charts so this really kind of set their trajectory moving with this record. Justin, what do you think, man? This song is at every wedding that you've ever been to. I guarantee you. Every wedding. Like, I don't care if they had a band or a DJ. This this is like <laughs> it's making it into This the, is the like set. the wedding song that that people that is it seems like is on every playlist. Um so I like it. Uh, it's great, right? Like it's I mean it's not like you know one of those songs that you you know you're falling it's a hit right like and it is what it is you've heard it a lot and that's not the song's fault i i <laughs> guess it's not my not the song's fault right but it's also like you know a little poppy for my taste uh but i like it and you know what look it, it made money like it's their first crossover hit like before even people talked about crossovers i mean uh, earth wind of fire is primarily being pushed on black radio until shining star and then they're going on the pop charts 
They're getting all these new listeners. You know, they're primarily performing for they're performing for both black and white crowds, but they're not really getting the exposure on white radio at that point. Um, and all of a sudden, Shining Star comes around, and it just opens up a new world for them. And uh, you know, just I mean, it's basically all the suits at CBS are patting their belly. This is the pocket of history specifically, like sort of like early 70s, probably like 73, 75, right up into like 82, 84, Michael Jackson, right? Or like the idea that there's like black charts and white music, right? It just seems insane because it seems so recent. And just when you see the way, you know, those things have, have collapsed, right? After that point, it just seems so foreign, Right. I to, mean, to you can go into any but, record but store today and, and, you know, they got the rock pop on one side and the R&B jazz. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we're not we're not that far removed from it. Yeah, that's, that's but, a good point. point. Yeah. yeah. You yeah, know, I mean, when you like, put it that way. No doubt that's true. Right. <laughs> yeah. But but it, and so they work really hard to sort of distinguish themselves. I mean, they didn't push away from their the black roots and because and they, you know, the, the there was the black. uh universities and and black radio that really got them their start and they didn't uh you know they didn't want to distance themselves from that you know sound that got them those fans but they did want to you know i mean maurice white he always wanted to you know go for more and and really reach everybody he was always about this you know oneness of humanity um you know that was part of the concept as rob uh so eloquently put it uh and that was, you know, what he was going for. So I think, you know, Shining Star is indicative of that. So I'm surprised to hear you say it's such a wedding staple because I honestly don't think I'd heard this song before, at least not consciously. I'm sure it's entered my ear holes, but I was unaware of it. Now, but we should say that they are kind of a wedding band. I don't mean that as a diss. I mean that a lot of these songs feel like they might get played at quite a few weddings. And certainly their later hit song, September, not on this record, gets played at almost every wedding oh, yeah. you're going to go to. So that's, I don't know if that's just a niche a niche for them or what. Well, it's but dance music. Me. Like, it's... And it is, but there's a lot of dance music, it, though. It, but it's funky and it's there's and I think that we talk about is crossover. Like, I, I don't know how to define crossover, but, you know, it's also a positive message, yep. you know, so it's a tends to be a little safer for all audiences in a way. Although I want to talk about uh, reasons being played. Oh, at weddings man. Later. Yes. That's, yeah. That's, is that next? But, but, uh, but, uh, no? no, no, we're, okay. we're going to get to that one. But I, but I have one fun recording anecdote about this song. So when they laid this song down, or maybe even the first time they they practiced it in the studio, they kind of they knew they had something pretty good on their hands. They knew they kind of knew they had a hit. So they worked it pretty hard to get it to where they wanted to go. But the story goes that the musicians pretty much all left the studio. Maurice and, and company left the studio. They left it with what did you call him? The step god. Step God. The step God was in there in the studio late night trying to trying to finish the track, trying to mix it. And the last thing they added on the track was snare hits on two and four all throughout the song to make it more rock pop friendly. Interesting. I know I wouldn't have picked up on that that like distinction, honestly. No, how could you, right? It sounds totally like it's a part of the drum beat and yet it wasn't there, and initially Maurice was kind of pissed about it when he came back. But then it, you know, Step God, Charles Stepney, the producer, convinced him. It became a huge hit. That's and there so was no interesting because even like I mean, obviously I just played it for myself for a second, and there's even places where like the the organ hits on the four, 
right? So it's like they were trying to supplement for it already. Like there's a sense that they needed that backbeat. And man, so, yeah, and, I, ne- and, I never would have sensed that listening to Yeah, that. and even within that, you maybe sense a little of their mindset, which is to try to stay away from being a pop band. Like a little hesitancy to kind of go full pop yeah. single. I want to give a little back background on Charles Stepney, right? Because Stepney, I, so you guys were talking about psychedelic elements earlier, right? Um, so Charles Stepney also was in-house producer, arranger, orchestrator, multi-instrumentalist. He played the vibraphone, piano uh, at Chess Records. He was working with a couple of their artists, and he was working with uh, a young, young lady uh, was a secretary at Chess by the name of Minnie Ripperton, and I'm sure you've heard of her. Minnie Ripperton and him collaborated and created a group called Rotary Connection in the 60s. And they had some really cool psych rock uh, that came out uh, in the late 60s. Have you guys heard of Rotary Connection? Yeah, yeah, Are you yeah. Fans? yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So Stepney is the one that's basically you know, produced and arranged a lot of that music in Rotary Connection. So that was sort of like why you see, you hear sort of a lot of the psych feel in some of this music is because Charles Stepney. Um, and he did the demos for a lot. There, there's a, um, this year, maybe it was the end of last, early this year. Uh, this So he died in 75. He died like a year later and he collaborated on them with, with uh, Earth, Wind & Fire on one more album. Um, Spirit in 1976 that came out, but he died in 76 um, uh, from a heart attack. And how old was he? He was young. He was like 45, maybe 46. Yeah, I feel like I'm on the clock. But I mean, Maurice White was was like, it's interesting. In Maurice's biography, he talks about going out to breakfast with uh, with, uh, Charles and watching him eat piles of bacon and piles of eggs and pancakes and like just how much he sweated. He just sweat like he would play and he got the meat sweats, just like sweat all the time. And you knew like he was just a guy who ran hot, you know. Uh, So but uh, anyway, his family, uh, his daughters put out a posthumous record of demos of him on a four four track recordings called Step by Step uh, this year. And they're really fucking amazing. And they have the genesis of some of these songs, uh, a song called Imagination, which is on the uh, the the uh, spirit album but also uh the genesis of uh the song that's the way of the world uh and it's he's playing that's the way of the world on a mini mog so it was like he was like a mini mog uh you know early yeah, early yeah. adopter first so it's cool to hear um you know that's the way of the world when he plays it on the mini mog after hearing you know earth wind and fire's version which he you know eventually you know got, took took maurice's inputs and the band's inputs and 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 made uh into a into a really great song well, that's a perfect segue into listening to a snippet of the title track called That's the Way of the World.
I had played that Lenny Kravitz song instead. My, my mistake. Oh, dude. Oh, I was wondering if anyone picked so, up on that. Although I did send that no. around. That you could. Why did he steal it? <laughs> Why? What an ass. The man has the man has one good album, and he can't not steal shit. Like, come well, on. He well, in fairness to him, he had stole this early, right? He, he didn't have much, right? Yeah, yeah. But that's man, the only album he's got, right? I, I, he had nothing else in the chamber. I he mean, released plenty of terrible music after that, certainly. But this was the one thing that I was hanging on to before I heard this song. That's the way of the world. I was thinking Lenny Kravitz has that one good song. It ain't over till it's over. That's a good track, but it's pretty much ruined. cribbed directly. <laughs> it's, it's bro. He sings the horn lines. Yeah, he sings the horn line. I, I didn't. I didn't like line up the chord progressions to see how much of an ape it was. But within, you know, I got through like halfway through the song, and there was just a vibe of this is definitely it ain't over till it's over. <laughs> Lenny Kravitz takes down a half step. Oh, well, excuse me. Well, I'll just check oh, right over there. Well, there you go. Well, that's <laughs> well, I mean, see, it's like the vanilla ice. contribution. No, I, I did do, do, do. That's fascinatingly creative. Thanks oh, for... Thanks. Here's the thing. It's even like the... the Even the, like, the sonic vibe is the same. Like the way yeah. the bass sits in the pocket and the way do, they got the, do, do. the clicks instead of the, the woodblock instead of the snare drum, right? Like the pocket, the sonic vibe is the same. But see, this is why... The reason I don't like Kravitz is because when I looked up, I looked around really, to hear I him meant, talking about this. God. And he's not even trying to hide it. He's like, no, yeah, direct inspiration. Like he's such a... Oh, I didn't realize it was entitled, that. On the uh, nose. Such an entitled Shameless. rich kid. Shameless. Shameless, yeah. So anyway, but let's talk about this song for a minute. This is a groove, dude. This is the I the bass is very dude, tasty. I actually the one my my first note, obviously, like being a bassist, I mean Verdine White is like he's not quite like Mount Rushmore of bassists, but I mean, if I were stacking a top wow. ten list of of bassists, he's he's in that top ten. I mean he is Wow. Well, like, well, you think I'm underrating him or? No, no, I, I, I've not heard him discussed in that light before. So, I I mean, I think he's great, but I'm not, you know, a bassist. So yeah. That's, that's... So he's, I think he's held up as one of these 70s funk, just pocket masters. He, you know, he's not like composing in the way of like Jocko or some of these other people, Stanley Clark, but just his pocket is so tight. But what's interesting, the reason I brought up his bass for this song was if you listen to like, you know, everyone's obsessed with Joe Dart right now from from Wolfpack and everyone kind of sweats him for like stuff like Dean Town and, and the real virtuoso stuff. This song, though, I I'm almost certain I don't know his like influences, but he plays a lot like what's on this specific track. And it's just so tasty the guitar solo is tasty. Everything. It's. A, I think the song's a little bit long for me, but it's man, it's a great song. I mean, I think it's one of the most perfect songs in the American music catalog. I'm. I'm really. I mean, this. I. I listen. I can't listen to this song without being emotional. Like I get. I get emotional. Just. I, I mean, the chord changes are like. They're kind of. They're like hopeful, but like. Also contemplative. Yeah, uh, I I really enjoyed. They had some uh, session players and the horn lines, but it's not like the horn lines aren't overwhelming. Uh, they're 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 perfectly like 
you know, part of the ensemble sound. I, there's just so much I love about it. And, you know, the, the lyrics are good, you know? I mean, it's sort of like, it's, it's a little cynical, right? Like, because, you know, the movie is That's the Way of the World. The movie was about... Uh, you know, a band that's kind of getting screwed over by the record label and they're getting, uh, you know, taken. And, and, and I think Earth, Wind & Fire had some experiences like that uh, before. So they, they, they sort of understood, you know, they understood that's, that's the way the world, you know. Um, and, and so there is some cynicism, but there's also, you know, just this beautiful hopeless hopefulness. And I think that's what, you know, that's what, I mean, Charles Stepney is the one who, you know, composed those those chord changes and, uh, it really comes through on his demo too. I mean, it's just uh, just a masterful piece of work, and I, I it's hard for me to find a song that I, I really, you know, uh, love from this era more than this. I really like the restraint of the song. I, I do feel like it maybe goes on a little too long. It becomes background music at a point, but I agree with a lot of what you both just said, and I like knowing that the players are so uber talented and yet just kind of hold it down in the pocket with this groove that just continues and feels a little like it could go on forever. So that's me That's me almost reversing what I just said, which is it's too long, but it, sh- it also just seems like one of those songs that can just loop somewhat endlessly. Well, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. It's like, uh, it just... there. It has a really beautiful separation between like the foreground and the background, right? And it's almost like the players knew... Like in the session, like how the mix was going to sound, right? And they're able to sit into those roles like intensely and and powerfully. These guys singing, I mean, we haven't really dove into the harmonies just yet, but the contrast, I think there were a lot of singers in the band, but the two main vocalists were Maurice and this guy, Philip Bailey. And so I, I, I don't know exactly who's singing what part where, but the, their ability to hit those really high falsettos and harmonize them and also then drop down to their more regular, I don't know, what, what might be a baritone voice, like that that contrast is a big part of their sound that I maybe didn't know about, and I found that really pleasing. I don't feel like I've heard other singers. I can't think of a lot of other singers doing that. When they were playing live, was Maurice playing drums? Was he roaming the stage? What was oh, he, going w- on? he was going all over the place. Yeah, all okay. over the place, man. Gotcha. Okay. From the, the a lot of the videos I saw, though, he was kind of the front man with this guy okay, Philip, okay. and they were kind of yep. like dancing around and singing together. That's Are he, what he at played least like from congas this era. at some point, like switch it up. Gotcha, man, okay. they had fucking then, magic then they, at that they, show. They, magic, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they were they were like, bro, their their live show was wild. Like at the at the couple years they had fucking David Copperfield designing their <laughs> designing sets, and they would pop down trap doors and shit. It was wild. Like they still play, like, don't they? Honest, I mean, Maurice. But Maurice I'm sure it's. I'm sure it's. In, oh, did he? 16. It, it's different. I, I, you can't even imagine the type of show. I, I mean, if I could go back and see any show from like the late 70s, man, that that might be that might be it. For Earth, me. Wind, and Fire, 1979, right? 70, 77, 77 yeah, on the Fantasy Tour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Fantasy <laughs> Tour. I think they had that was the because they had another uh, magician first, and he was like the biggest magician in the world at that time. And then they got David Copperfield and like David Copperfield's like, you know, was the biggest you yeah, know, magician, yeah. you know, and like he like they had a routine. They had all these. I mean, like they're they probably had one of the most I- I- intricate, uh, 
you know, setups. And they, they said, if you didn't pay attention, if you came on high, you would have gotten hurt. You could have got killed falling into some of the traps. You imagine going to see a band and then like at the end of the song, there being like a big explosion and just like all 12 members of the band just disappear <laughs> right in front of your eyes. You like, what the yeah. fuck? It's all about the spectacle, man. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. All right, let's roll it right along to the next tune called All About Love. Loving is a blessing, yeah. Never let it fade away. It's all about love, yeah. Build yourself a true romance. Beauty that's around you, yeah. You deserve just one more chance, my dear, my dear. Mm. Let the light shine all through your mind. Fill your little heart aglow. Take the time, make up your mind. It's all about love, yeah. Talking to yourself is fine. Makes you feel much better. Know just where to draw the line, and my dear, and my dear heart. So I know this song was written in 1975, but was this actually the first 90s R&B song? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I put this there's got, on every record. There's got to be a low light, and I put this on as my low light. I I just get song talking is a real tough line to walk, and. There were points in this where I didn't even think that Maurice was buying it, what he was throwing down. <laughs> there's, a, there's a, I marked a part, I marked a spot. I think it's at 325. He's talking about I studied all kinds of cults, sciences, astrology, mysticism. Have mercy. He just like even his delivery doesn't sound like he even believes what he's saying. Which I say is a natural fact because you are as beautiful as your thoughts, right on. You know, like, with us, for instance, you know, like, we've studied all kind of cult sciences and strategy and mysticism and world religion and so forth, you dig? And, like, uh, coming from a hip place, all of these things help because they give you an inside to your inner self. Have mercy. It, it reminded me of of the uh, Stevie Wonder inner visions when he's like Iraq, Iran, Eurasia. Like he's just <laughs> it, <laughs> right, right, right. It reminded right. me a lot of that. And like this actually wasn't a low light for me. There's another song we're going to talk about that for me was a bit of a low light. But it this was just a weird song. The, the I don't know if you would call it the chorus, but whatever that first changes and it happens a few times, the chord is not what you're expecting. You're like. In in your psyche, I feel like there's a a more major kind of chord or or like a predictable chord change that should happen or that you would expect. That's around you, yeah. You deserve just one more chance, my dear, my dear. Mm. Let the light shine all through your mind. Fill your little heart. The change was was very like unsettling, but I thought kind of cool. But yeah, definitely a bit of a of, of an odd tune. I like the weird shit at the end. I bought this album because it was on a bunch of lists, and I had heard some of the songs before when I first started getting into records a little over ten years ago. And this song occurs at the end of the first uh, end of the first side, 
And it's got that weird like beep, and I, I don't know whether I was just into some weird stuff or something like that, but I just kept listening. To, I was like, man, what? What are they going? What's going on there? Like, are they trying to get at something? Is this like a weird message or something like that? <laughs> like, I was like, what? <laughs> what kind of reasoning is there to put that at the end of the? Because they, because they, at the end of the, um, at the end of the other side of the record, they also have that like little passage with that same sound, and I just like that always distracted me. I was like, what the hell is this about? Like, what were they trying to do? I don't know. I've read, I've read about, you know, read about the album, the band. I, I've never figured that out. But it's all right. Yeah, it's a jam. I mean, it's an R&B tune. You know, it is what it is, right? Like, I think Earth, Wind, and Fire, one of the things they were famous for is their ballads, and there aren't, you know, they're, they're slow jams, right? Um, and there, this is, you have the origin of the slow jam. I mean, 100%, you're right. Like, all them 90s R&B guys, like, where do you think they got it from? You know, they're... Their daddies were all listened to, you know, probably conceived of this moms. music. <laughs> Seriously, like it, it, it wouldn't be surprising. You yeah. Know? So it is funny though. I did. I also did feel like that part at the end was weirdly bolted on. Like I don't. I don't know. Sometimes I can see the logic of of you know placing like a little bit of an extra, you know, post roll going. But yeah, it was it was a little strange at the end, but definitely a, a jam. I'm realizing just now that did we did I not include any songs on this focus list that include the kalimba playing? Because that was really one of the most bright and surprising parts of this. I've never heard someone play that thumb piano with such uh, ferocity. Gusto. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I guess it's on a couple of the faster tracks, and maybe we maybe we ended up focusing on the ballads. But um, yeah, what do you what did you think about that kalimba? Just in brief, I think it's on Happy Feeling, for instance. It's on uh, probably on Africano. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my bad for not including one so we could talk about it. But yeah, Africano is like the more like jazz track. I that I kind of always kind of gravitated towards. I like that the kalimba. He was actually, uh, you know, he named his production company Kalimba Productions uh, because it was a big deal for him. When he was with Ramsey Lewis, he uh, experimented with the kalimba. And apparently the story goes that he was a very shy guy. And with Ramsey Lewis, you know, you like playing in the back drums because you were in the background, right? Uh, so there was a, at one point in Ramsey Lewis where he wanted to go up to the uh, front of the mic to play the kalimba and play a kalimba solo. And and like the first couple times he couldn't more or Ramsey couldn't get him to do it. Uh, but eventually that was how he kind of broke out of his shell was playing the kalimba solo. So that was sort of like a breakthrough for him, you know, emotionally in being able to, you know, eventually like lead the band. So I, I, I mean, the sounds cool. I'm not like super into it, uh, like whatever it does. It just it feels original. I mean, I know it's, he didn't literally invent it obviously, but I like the idea of people, like, is there another well-known kalimba player in the musical tradition? It's just a cool thing to be really good at and to kind of make your well, signature. In this particular context, I mean, I, I, I don't. I, we can come back to my my nonsense because I, I might I might pull us away from kalimba a little. 
<laughs> okay, let's talk about. I want to talk about the song "Reasons." No, let's no, wait, wait, before, wait, wait. Before we get into reasons, I do, I do have a comment, a, a legit comment about the way the kalimba is sort of like. I like the way here in "All About Love," the kalimba comes in during the the sort of Gil Scott Hernan spoken word section, and, and oh, it does. It, well, yeah, yeah. Isn't isn't that what's under there? The sort of music box sort of jam, or am I? You know, I really didn't pick up on on this instrument. Or is that vibraphone? It, it might be a vibraphone because Stephanie played vibraphone. Oh, maybe maybe I don't have the kalimba. I think I think the vibraphone part was in that um, was in the song that 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 Rob was talking about. I think the kalimba was on a couple other couple other. Tracks. Go to Happy Feeling Mark Forty Five. You'll hear the kalimba, and we'll drop that in. <laughs> interesting it's kind of like yeah maybe i didn't pick that up as kalimba thank you it's got like a gamelon vibe yeah i you know i i still don't really know what a gamelon is you know <laughs> what, what is that it's, it's I'm, just, I'm googling it, these instruments like, as we speak like <laughs> gamelon's more, more like an eastern i guess i would call it like i think it's indonesian or yeah, something it's like a I rhythm say, quartet it's for like these like pentatonically tuned bells and drums it's pretty hip and it's it, it looks like pots oh, and pans. Yeah. Oh yeah, I think it is a bunch of tuned bell chimes. This or just bells sounds or similarly something. pentatonic and sort of. This one out. picture literally looks like it's like a bunch of Dutch ovens with the lids on. <laughs> What's a kalimba look like? You've definitely seen it. It's the thumpy. Yeah, one. it's yeah, it's a little like. Oh, this guy. Yeah, sure. I have one of these. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should make a record with one. I, I as the prominent. Now that Maurice is gone, there's an opening. Okay, let's move on to the song Reasons. Let's play a snippet of Reasons. Now I'm craving your body. Is this real? Temperatures rising. I don't want to feel. I'm in the wrong place to be real. Oh, and I'm longing to love you just for a night. Kissing and hugging. Well, you brought up the or alluded to the idea that this is a kind of common wedding song or like a first dance type song when it's actually appears to be about a one night stand or <laughs> something <laughs> right. like that. So right. that is pretty funny. I did think in this song, it felt like a cool showcase of, of vocals, a cool groove. My main takeaway was that it felt like less than the sum of its parts where like all the all the different constituent parts are are good but something about the song just didn't really work for me i don't know what it was this falsetto kind of hurts my teeth yeah it's it like a intense. little too too high for me it's going to break 
break a glass at that wedding. Well, and very sustained too. Like it wasn't just like, you know, I'm going to reach for it like selectively. It's like, no, no, I'm just going to turn it up up to 11 and leave it there. (laughs) It's very impressive. Don't get me wrong, but it's just, it's, it's definitely intense. So there's a there's an anecdote uh, a couple years later uh, where the band was going through some having some arguments about some women prior to going on stage, and uh, they tried to calm them down. And I don't think it was it was uh, I think it was a manager there that said, "Guys, what are we here for? The music or the bitches?" And somebody said, "The bitches," and everybody <laughs> laughed. And everybody went. They were like. Was something were cool and went back to play, they played the concert and everything went great. They're like, hey, these aren't mutually exclusive, you know. Like we can <laughs> we can walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> but but this band is notorious like for you know groupies, right? And and Maurice White himself like th- their stories. Uh, Maurice White is is hundred percent upfront about his you know not having not wanting to have you know settled down a relationship. He actually invented. Uh, have you guys heard of the term called the fly out? No, no. Where where you fly a young lady out to your hotel and pay to put her up uh, so that you know you guys can hang out for the weekend. Uh, Maurice White was <laughs> the <inventor>. admits to <laughs> flying out girls to his wherever he would be performing, putting them up in the hotel and having them there for them. For him when he was, you know, done with his shows. Just have good conversation, you know, things like that. Man, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, st- the, sh- the song starts out, I'm craving your body. So I, I think you know, I think they knew what was up. Also, like, in a different way, right? They're like, you're talking about, like, groupies. It makes way more sense that this music would attract women as an audience than, say... Megadeth. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's not for you, Phil. This this song isn't for you, Phil. I, I mean, I'm just they saying, like, by vo- I know, I know. I'm just saying, like, by volume, it makes way more sense that, like, women groupies would be, women would be at these shows. They'd be excited to be at Earth, Wind, and Fire shows, as opposed to, say, Megadeth. Shows. Well, also, look at this album cover. Like, these are some handsome men who are dressed extremely well, who are, yeah, it's kind of too easy yeah i like i just like the idea that that woman doesn't even get to go to the show she just has to sit quietly in the hotel room waiting <laughs> i mean I, 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 they might they might have gotten to go to the shows i don't know he just talks about in his book how he was flying girls out for whatever show he'd have and have them just chilling the one timestamp i noted I, I didn't love this song either like i said the falsetto is a little intense but the one thing i wanted to point out arrangement wise is that and it's time stamped at 156. When they drop back into the verse after the first chorus, the feel of the verse has totally changed. They're hitting different rhythmic beats, they're emphasizing different spots. And after the love game has been played, all our illusions are just a parade, and all our reasons start to fade. Yeah, man, that syncopation was is fire. I I, I dig that part. That that's the one part like. I just think that's a sign of someone who's working hard to arrange songs in a layered manner. Yeah, and I, I suppose yeah, you have to compare that kind of to the, what's going on in the first verse, but it's it's really different, you know. So I, I've been watching some YouTube videos just by like a bunch of different Nashville guys in general, 
mostly guitar players just trying to get like their their take on things and one of the guys said this phrase uh take the heat in the second verse right and it's the idea of that like at some point in the song usually the second verse in a pop song right nothing changes except the words so somebody's got to make it change and in this song like in this spot here it's like the drums are taking the heat right like they do this thing where like nobody else they just yeah it's cool it's hip and it's it's a very very professional yeah it's a good call rob good good detail no it's a it's a good point about song structure generally and i think we've all kind of known that having written songs and gone through those arrangements but it's it is kind of a weird trough in the arrangement or it could potentially be unless you really have stuff to add or stuff to change well yeah yeah you write a song on a single instrument it's yeah it's one thing and then you know you start playing with a group you've got to got to leave things out right so you have somewhere to go it's yeah it's, it's a, just a different uh puzzle cool all right let's go on to the last song on the list it's called and it's also the last song on the record and it's called see the light point in the studio where they're like actually fuck this we want to do our like headhunters thing <laughs> <Yeah>. here <laughs> i was i was thinking more return to forever but yeah <laughs> pretty much yeah i one of the notes i had was that it, i thought it limped to the finish a little bit in that this feels very meandering and it feels like it just is a, a little bit amorphous it is cool though to see them flex a little bit because you know, I mentioned earlier, I had a certain set of expectations and they, they kind of outdid those expectations. I obviously they're great musicians, but it was cool to see them do their, you know, sort of proggy kind of thing here. Uh, it really just, it honestly felt like a, a jam to me in a good way. Yeah. I, th- I thought the groove here was really cool. I'm, I don't love the track ordering. I don't know if they should have put this last exactly because it was a little more experimental. It feels like Feels like they could have closed it out with one of the more epic ballads. Just a thought, but I I did like the groove of it, and I was it really perked my head up because of the. I didn't count out exactly what time signature some of the sections are in. They're probably in seven, or something. But you know, it felt pretty revolutionary for a pop group at the yeah, time this, to this, be putting I, stuff like this. Yeah, down. this kind of like blows my ears up. Yeah, like I yeah, it, I also like this. There are elements of this record, and this this song definitely reminds me of it. Like. There are some lines back to maybe what Stevie Wonder is doing around this time, just with some of like the clavinet sounds um, and some of like the the bigger arrangements. And that's like, I don't mean that in like a, uh, like, you know, artists respond to each other's work, 
Right. Well, it's funny you mention that because in Philip Bailey's memoir titled Shining Star, which is the one I read, he mentioned specifically that they he loved Stevie Wonder so much. And during this period where he could tell Earth, Wind & Fire was doing really well, he really went out of his way to not listen to Stevie Wonder's material as much as possible because he knew like he yeah, wanted yeah. to be just as distinct it. from it as he could. Yeah. yeah. It's Charles Stepney and, and, you know, using the mini mog and, and, you know, I mean, that's, it's clear, uh, clear Stevie wonder. I mean, parallel tracks, I think is, yeah. is the best way to think about it. Right. Um, you know, he's on this, tra- I think if Stephanie, Stepney had to live longer, he would be a lot more, um, you know, important and famous. He might've done some great things, you know, in the late seventies, unfortunately. Uh, but yeah, yeah, he's on, on a similar parallel tracks. He's already using the Mog. Um, he did an album that was like, use the Mog with, uh, Ramsey Lewis. Um, that was basically mother nature's son. That was like, kind of like a, um, yeah, yeah. A, a redo of, of like the, the white album or something like that. I think I was, I was checking out one of those records earlier in the podcast. Uh, like I just like looked at the track list, uh, maiden voyage has lady Madonna on it. Um, and it has another, oh, and it has, uh, oh yeah, Quinn, the Eskimo. Uh, so yeah, so he's definitely doing that jazz hip hop song thing. And that's right? Stepney that produced yeah, Maiden Voyage, yeah. you know. Yeah, totally. With Maurice White on drums and Charles Ram or uh, Ramsey Lewis on. And like the Lady Madonna's pretty out there. Like it's got some pretty weird sounds on it. Like it's pretty it's pretty weird, you know, in a cool way. What's what's cool I think about the synthesizers and the impact they had on a lot of keyboard players. It's a monophonic instrument, right? So all of a sudden, all the best keyboard players have access to these sounds that have, have been impossible to get to for keyboard players before, but they can only play one note at a time, right? <laughs> so it's this whole mind fuck and they can create chords, right? Cause they're in studios, right? But they got to play it one note at a time. They got to think about it differently, right? They got to think about their own parts, like a horn section a little more. I just think it has a really Mm -hmm. cool impact on the pad sounds and some of the, yeah, it's, yeah. And you hear it, you hear it here. Um, It's not just the solo. It's some of the stuff that's happening in the background. Um, Yeah, it's very hip. And and you even wonder, does, does it even begin to bleed into the way you think about these vocal arrangements, right? Which are similarly big, beautiful stacks. Yeah, they talked about how th- when they would rehearse, they would very purposely rehearse vocal uh, vocals separate from everyone else in the band too, and like like get really kind of solid on the arrangements separately, and then come together. That that makes perfect sense. So uh, we definitely run quiet band practices where we'll you know not have drums or uh, drums will be very like just timekeeping. Uh, yeah. And it, you do get a whole, it's a whole different experience, right? Where the vocals dial in and the details are uh, very obvious. Well, it's like when you strip a song to that point, you can really tell if it's a good song or not. Yeah. You know, it's if you take helpful. away all the, all the noise. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think we've talked about this record quite enough. We're at the end of our focus list. And all that remains now is to go around the horn and vote. Does Earth, Wind, and Fire's That's the Way of the World belong on the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die? Must you hear this record before you die, Alan? Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's. I think it's essential. It fits a lot of my criteria. So really iconic group. 
it's their only album on the list, which to me weights things heavier where, you know, iconic group, one album on the list. But it's just, you know, you could make a case that it's not essential, right? I think there are other groups around this time that I, I do find maybe a bit more essential going back to like Sly Stone and, and some of these other groups. But I, I think it's it's great. It's classic. And it's it's worth a listen. Awesome. Let's start with the Justin. A thousand and one record. I think this would be a hundred records uh, that you need to listen to before. You can find this on like a lot of the top fifty soul record uh, lists. I mean, I, I'm I'm a Maurice White acolyte. I'm a Earth, Wind, and Fire evangelizer. Uh, I I believe I believe in what Maurice did and and what they did, and I feel like this is such a powerful effort and. Uh, it's a great tribute to you know the beautiful musical genius of Charles Stepney, and um, you know I hope I hope people can you know just get a chance to appreciate it. Phil, what do you think? Uh, I think Justin took some of the words out of my mouth. Uh, I think this is this is probably you know we're, I'm only maybe you know fifty sixty episodes in. How far how far in are we? We didn't hundred yet. Dude. Where are we? We're close. We're eighty something, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I imagine we were at 100, but we're not quite there. And it doesn't matter. I feel like this is 101, not 1,001. You'd be hard-pressed to find a better 38 minutes. Um, yeah, this is an easy yes. I'll, I'll definitely, I'll probably buy this on vinyl. Uh. Cool. Well, I'm going to round it out and make it unanimous. I think you absolutely should listen to this. I'm certainly glad I did. I didn't know what, I really didn't know too much of what to expect, and I was happily surprised by what was on here. And I think one of the reasons it's important, all the reasons that were mentioned, of course, but I'll just add to that, that it represents this pastiche of what that era was about. And I think, you know, from one of the best groups and the best set of musicians who were striving to change music, to do a lot of different things, all in the context of one band. So you get a lot of different sounds and no doubt a lot of different inspirations coming off of this. That is that is obvious. No, totally. I think something I'm looking forward to coming out of this conversation even is just learning more about some of this crew, right? Like it seems pretty cr- clear that this is a, like a Steely Dan-like crew, right? And it goes not only like with these players, but they, there's, there's, there's ties to like the past. And I sort of look forward to learning more. Very cool. Earth, Wind, and Fire. One more accolade to add to the pile. You've been validated by <laughs> the four of us. So get you, excited. You can throw that Lifetime Achievement Award in the trash because... <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. Finally. Finally. Okay, it's all that remains... our verbal approval means everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the record now. All that remains now is for us to crank up the old Albinator and figure out what we're going to be listening to Next week, in Tom's absence, he has given me the the starter key, and I am now vigorously pumping gas into the engine and uh, jerking the chain to get it started. We need so, a visual uh, of Rob trying to jumpstart the, the Alvinator. <laughs> Without further ado, drumroll, please. Next week, we will be listening to Big Stars. The record is called Number One Record. I like that already. I've never heard of this, but never heard. Of I like the cut of your jib. If that's your uh, album title, <laughs> <laughs> I always, I know, I always wanted to call an album Greatest Hits. I thought that'd be fun. But this what is year? Like that. What year is that album? That's a good question. Definitely seventies. 
I'm, I want, I'm gonna guess mid seventies. I know them a little bit. They're kind of a, they're like an early indie seventies group, and I want to say that they did the original version of the song that is the theme of that seventies show. But I think the one you're hearing on that seventies show is a cover. Ah, no shit. Anyway, um, yeah, I think they're kind of like an underground band from the 70s cool well we look forward to that hope you are excited to listen along to some more 70s pop music with big star and we will be seeing you next week if you think we got it right if you think we got it wrong if we got any of our facts incorrect about earth wind and fire please let us know we came here to learn we would love to be corrected via your emails to 1001 album complaints at gmail please send your missive our way and with that we shall be closing out the week for 1001 album complaints i've been rob i'm alan i'm phil and i'm justin boosh Boosh.